This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back, everyone, to Your Case is on Hold, episode 16, second half of August. Hopefully, everyone is in the full swing of summer. And you are ready for a very, very dense and rich issue of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. As the avid listeners know and new listeners are about to find out, I am Andrew Schoenfeld, Deputy Editor for Methods at JBJS. Here's the agenda. Got the suitcase up in the Centra. Go to room 112. Tell them Blanco sent you. And my colleague... Not as cool as Blanco, let's put it that way. <laughs> I'm Antonia Chen, Deputy Editor of Knee in Adult Reconstruction, the best subspecialty in orthopedics. Thank you. <laughs> Not biased. Um, it's always, it's, you always try to get it in there. It's just so, they hate us because they ain't us. All my spine people know what we're talking about. For uh, our avid listeners, you've heard this before. For new listeners, please uh, subscribe get uh, the notifications about each issue of Your Cases on Hold that comes out. Be sure to give us a five-star rating on uh, Apple uh, or Spotify, because that does help us and the journal out. These things we're talking about today are just the opinions of Antonia and myself and do not reflect the editorial policy of the journal or constituent publications, as well as the Board of Trustees. This issue of Your Cases on Hold is brought to you by Case Connector. Uh, no, Clinical Classroom. It could be Case Connector. Case Connector and Clinical Classroom, but really Clinical Classroom. And um, still looking for individuals who would like to contribute, reach out to the JBJS customer support, or uh, just go to the website, jbjs.org, and check out um, the Clinical Classroom if you're interested in contributing. Without further ado, uh, as we have previously, we're going to be touching on top of the pile. It, all of our subsections, with the exception of headlines, could be like a racehorse name. Top of the pile. Your case is on hold. And guess Toss up. Toss up, kind of. Toss up. Toss up. And then honorable mention. <laughs> I love it. In any case, top of the pile, we have in this issue re some really interesting things. Uh, for real. What, what's new in limb lengthening and deformity correction by Baffer? Um, this is permanently free. So at no point in time, no matter when you're listening to this, even a decade from now, you can still check this out for free. An introduction to the Orthopedic Diversity Leadership Consortium, advancement of our orthopedic leaders of diversity, equity, and inclusion through networking strategy and innovation by Taylor 
and colleagues. The table one fallacy, p-values in baseline tables of randomized controlled trials by PILS, and then three evidence-based orthopedics features. I think you wrote one of those. Am I, am I right? I Guilty as charged. <laughs> so um, the, the evidence-based orthopedics features are just kind of little snippets that you can get uh, a, a sense of the thoughts and ideas around a piece of research that was published elsewhere in the orthopedic universe from an individual in the JBJS space. So those are really kind of quick and easily digestible. So check those out. At this point, we're going to head into the headlines. My headline is geographic access to high volume care providers and survival in patients with bone sarcomas, nationwide patterns in the United States. This is by Fujiwara and colleagues. There is a visual summary and there's also a commentary. So don't just take my word for it. Check it out for yourself and hear what others think about it. All of these articles that we're covering are in the second issue of JBJS for the month of August 2022 and are also accessible through jbjs.org. So you really have no excuses. There are multiple ways in which you can get your hands on these um, and and read this really rich material. So this, this study is looking at a couple of different things, including the distance that patients who have bone sarcomas have to travel uh, in order to get care, as well as uh, volume outcome relationship. We are really attentive to the volume outcome relationship in almost every aspect of orthopedics at this point, joint replacement, spine, sports. Um, It's especially important in the setting of orthopedic oncology And they used the National Cancer Database to examine the associations between travel distance and survival among uh, close to 8,500 patients with bone sarcomas treated between 2004 and 2015. These are uh, essentially rare, relatively rare conditions for which uh, a clinical experience and a center that has multidisciplinary care is very important. And in some areas, we take for granted that the hospital around the corner is going to have those capabilities. But in other parts of the United States, it really isn't that way. And some patients have to travel quite a distance to get the kind of care that they need. Otherwise, they look for care at a center relatively close to them that may not be able to provide the same level of service, one, because they might not have the capabilities And two, they just might not have that level of experience. So to kind of flesh that out, in this particular setting, high volume procedures were, uh, or high volume facilities were performing 20 cases or more per year, and low volume are less than five. So that's kind of the, the, the spectrum that we're talking about. And the authors found that the mortality risk was lower among patients at the high volume facilities with a hazard reduction of about 28%. They also found that greater travel burden was associated with higher survival rates. And they attributed this finding to patients actually traveling to receive care at the high volume, higher quality facilities. And they recommended modifications of referral pathways to specialized centers can improve survival for patients with bone sarcomas. This is real interesting stuff. It's, it's high level and relevant to health, health policy. Um, a couple of points, and, and uh, you know, the study speaks for itself. What I really got into was actually some like second order kind of things, looking at how, how do we interpret some of their 
subset analyses, like when you look at table one, for example, they have a breakdown of patients by race or ethnicity. These are not necessarily things that they were touching on, but they're things that I find interesting. And I think it's important for us to talk about it. So in this cohort, they had about 76% of patients that were white overall, and about 11% uh, African-American and and 9% Hispanic. When you look at what's really interesting, so when you look at the distance traveled to the facility, the population of patients who had to travel less than 10 miles, so they're really close, whites are underrepresented underrepresented in that group as compared to the baseline, and African-American and Hispanic patients are overrepresented in that group. That's because a lot of these high-level academic facilities tend to be in urban centers. When you look at the patients who had to travel 11 to 49 miles, and even more so greater than 50 miles, white patients are overrepresented to a a much higher degree. Now, they they broke this down in in an unusual way. They kind of like consider each of these cohorts in their own lane. So you're getting 100% for the less than 10-mile group uh, and uh, 11 to 49 miles and and 50 miles instead of like showing the distribution within each of the race or ethnicity categories. But I think what we're seeing here is something that we have appreciated in our own work with um, Mass General Brigham data. So the the primary care clinics at Mass General Brigham serve a large minority population of, of broad diversity. And those patients, if they get referred for orthopedic oncology care, spinal metastases is really the space that I'm speaking to here they're absolutely taken care of, of course. But when we see patients, and there are many patients who travel or fly in from all over the country or even outside the United States, those are overwhelmingly white patients with the finances to support that kind of travel. And that's the phenomenon that we're seeing here, that the, the minority patients who were closely located to the hospitals, they were able to access that care. But then individuals who are further away, it's really patients who probably only had the substance and means that were able to get there. And these intersections, this is not even like a talking point that the authors are focused on. It's a tangential point that I just find really interesting. And it's an opportunity to look at healthcare segregation in this context. And for those who may not be familiar with that term, what healthcare segregation means is uh, underserved communities that don't have the ability to access the um, high-performing centers either due to distance or just other barriers that may be systemic to some degree that are challenging or limiting their ability to, to access. And that's important when we're considering these types of initiatives and some of what the authors call for, which is essentially, like they don't come right out and say it, but they're essentially talking about like a centers of excellence model, like really consolidate the care for patients that have these rare conditions. It maintains the volume in terms of experiential volume. It also creates efficiencies in terms of centers that are able to provide all of the necessary care with all of the different disciplines, services, cutting edge treatments. From a methods angle, when you're talking about Cox proportional hazards, you always want to assess the proportionality assumption. It can be done in a variety of ways. When you look at the display in figure two, those are uh, Kaplan-Meier curves that show what a proportionality assumption should kind of look like. So just a tip there from your Uncle Drew regarding uh, checking things out in Cox proportional hazard regression. The last thing that I really thought was interesting is um, in the discussion, they get into some of the 
real deep dive in the weeds on interpretations, particularly when it comes around children, because there are pediatric patients included in these cohorts. And they talk about the overall survival is worse in adult patients who traveled short distances, but that was not the case for pediatric patients. And they postulate that this reason may be that 80% of cancer care for U.S. children is provided through children's hospitals, and there are 220 of those uh, all across the country. And the vast majority of high-volume facilities were academic centers. They may already be capturing the most pediatric patients who are likely to receive care or be transferred to care in those facilities. And that was also, you know, really interesting because there are free of charge referral children's hospitals like St. Jude's, which they mention here specifically, but also kind of comes to mind in the popular consciousness. And uh, patients are able to access those and travel those without having to consider, you know, the, the financial impact that that may have. So they recommend a follow-up prospective study with multi-institutional collaborations to understand how to effectively direct patients to high-volume centers. That's the only part of this that I would say is kind of on hold because how likely is that really to happen? I mean, you can say whatever you want in a discussion, but like make the next step something that is really like you'd have to, to do this. You'd have to have like interviews with every single patient who's showing up and talking to them. How far did you travel? Why did you travel? What were your considerations for travel? It just doesn't seem like that study is, is uh, especially forthcoming in the future. I have... Uh... Nothing to add except that I'm You're speechless. I am You're speechless. Just... It's a good topic. You know, we've been covering all the different areas. And I think error tumor is the hardest one to publish on in all sorts of ways, just because there's just less of them, right? So numbers, and we'll compare this to the study that I'm going to cover. You can't get tens of thousands of patients, right? So this type of topic, I think, is actually a really relevant one, especially in our day and age of travel and getting people to where they are. And it does highlight health disparities as well. So I think it's a subtle health disparities one, which I think is important. And um, I think you highlight all the good points about it. Yeah, there was a lot to like touch on here that gets us in different areas and avenues, but that's what we're doing here at Your Cases on Hold. That's why you're tuning in to listen to us talking. And literally, there are probably tens of people listening to us right now. And those people who are listening might actually have their cases on hold, just like I did yesterday. <laughs> so I thought about recording yesterday when my case was on hold, but then I already- called me up. You're like, hey, are you ready to go? Let's just do it now. So, yeah. so my uh, featurette is the aspirin may be a suitable prophylaxis for patients with a history of venous thromboembolism undergoing total joint arthroplasty. By Ludwig Call, there's also a commentary. So again, don't have to listen to what I have to say, but there's other commentary as well. So the million dollar question we've been asking ourselves as arthroplasty surgeons all this time is, can we give aspirin to all of our patients as a DVT prophylaxis or VTE prophylaxis after surgery? And what we like about aspirin is you don't require monitoring. It's an oral agent and it's cheap. All those things are a win when it comes to administering it to patients. Um, but historically, people have said, well, if a patient has a history of a VTE, you probably shouldn't give them aspirin. So this is a study out of an institution that has done a lot of single institution studies of over 36,000 patients, of patients undergoing total joint arthroplasty between 2008 and 2020. 
And this let's get the name out there. What's the institution? Let's get it out. Rothman Institute. All right. All right. The progenitor of aspirin-based prophylaxis. They are. They're definitely generated a lot of data, which you've discussed here on this podcast on aspirin use in hip fracture, aspirin use in all different areas. And the benefit of aspirin as this is there's no conflict, right? No one's making money off aspirin. And so that's one of the nice things about this topic. It's it's conflict-free in theory when it comes to um, talking about aspirin. Now, this is the same database, again, that's used over and over again for a multitude of studies. And you know it's nice to be able to see this maybe validated in other databases as well, because um, that's always information to be able to see. Um, but that said, looked at patients who had a documented history of VTE. And the hard part is a history of VTE is so nebulous when it comes to the chart, right? They did say they looked at the charts and they looked at nurse navigator notes, which are good. They can actually query and talk to the patient. But for example, they didn't talk about the location of the clot, the size of the clot. You know, if you have one that's superficial versus deep, you know, that's a difference, and people would just call it a history VTE. Um, treated versus not treated, right? If it's superficial, you probably didn't treat it, put some warm compresses on a call today. And the one of the biggest delineators that they differentiate later on in terms of subsequent development is symptomatic VTE. So they didn't talk about history of symptomatic VTE. They just talked about history of VTE. But in their outcomes, they look at symptomatic VTE, which is a better metric than just asymptomatic VTE. The authors did acknowledge that the timing of previous VTE was difficult to characterize. So if you had a VTE 30 years ago, if as associated with your pregnancy, that's different if you develop VTE after a surgical procedure or you had a spontaneous VTE. So the duration of time and the develop that may the method of development was not needed, unfortunately. <clears throat> They did exclude patients who took preoperative warfarin. Now, that's not the only medication that people take if they have a previous DVT, but that does assume that they had a history of VT in a certain time frame. So they didn't want it within the six months of index arthroplasty. Those on any chronic non-aspirin drugs were excluded, um, which is good. There are only 403 of them. And I would think there'd be more patients in that big database who were on non-aspirin chronically prior to surgery, unless it was just for VTE purposes. If they were not on for VTE purposes, such as AFib, other medication, other conditions, I feel like a lot more patients are on um, either DOAX or other anticoagulation drugs. Now, again, the authors here focus on symptomatic VTE as the outcome of interest is whether or not a history of VTE stratified by aspirin versus non-aspirin drugs resulted in a high risk of VTE, symptomatic VTE within 90 days. And they looked at just deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism, taking us superficial, understandably. They did propensity score matching, and we can ask our methodology expert here to talk about it. The propensity score matching was a one-on-one fashion on a bunch of variables that were useful. So they included the VTE risk score, which was developed by this group in Rothman, operatively treated joint, unilateral bilateral operation, revision of primary surgery, tranexamic acid, and cement use. And by cementing, especially in total hips, you can increase your risk of emboli. So that makes sense. While it included those good variables, I would have actually liked to see other variables included as well. And some of these variables, the authors actually included in the study already, for example, operative time. I'd like to see the use of tourniquet, plus or minus tourniquet use, and how long the tourniquet was used for. Um, the use type of anesthesia that was used, um, post-operative mobilization, 
the benefit of using this institutional database as opposed to a big database like NISQIP or NIS or AJRR is that you have this granular data and you should be able to dig into it and be able to report from it. So those would be in, in nice things to have as part of propensity score matching to really tease out the difference in the actual anticoagulation versus the population themselves. And the hardest part about all this is that as a big retrospective study, you're looking at these patients who received aspirin versus didn't receive aspirin and got a quote, stronger anticoagulation with a history of VTE that's already skewed to begin with, right? It's more likely that I'm going to give a patient who's at lower risk aspirin after surgery, even if they had a previous VTE. And you can see that these patients weren't identical, right? Before propensity score matching, they did have lower ASA, lower BMI, and lower operative time in the ASA group as opposed to the non-ASA group with a previous history of VTE. Now, they did control it when they matched for it. Um, they did find out that it was similar in terms of the rate of VTE between two groups. Now, the differences were not statistically significant. They did report, you know, 0.4% lower incidence of VTE in the aspirin group versus non-aspirin agent, which is 1.5. And whether or not that's due to the agent or the patient's comorbidities, remember lower ASA in the patients who got aspirin, it makes a little bit difference, even though statistically they're not significantly different. They did do a regression. They identified that the VTE risk score was the best predictor of VTE. The key factor, though, is that 95% confidence interval is only between 1.001 and 1.02. So it wasn't a huge interval when it comes to 95% interval. But overall, this is a study that's bringing up another area of light of potential use of aspirin in patients who had a previous history of VTE. So use it with caution. Um, it's one of those things where it's always like, you know, future studies should be done looking at this. Patients can be randomized to types of anticoagulation. It would just take a large patient population. Yeah, I I, um, I think that this is definitely interesting work. Sort of the general idea is suitable for propensity score matching. There's obviously, you know, looking at this body of work, even if you just restrict it to the data produced from Thomas Jefferson, you kind of have this stepwise iteration of is aspirin okay versus these other ones in like the low risk patient. Once you show that it is, then it just becomes this sequential means of trying to push the envelope. And we don't have a toss up in this section, but we'll do impromptu toss up time. So here's the toss up. What do you take away from a study that has the conclusion essentially being this treatment may be suitable in patients with a history of this condition. So may be suitable in patients, what really it should say is certain patients with a history of this condition, because the spectrum of history of venous thromboembolism is, is quite broad. And that's really where I had some pause with this work, because what you're doing with propensity score matching is you are trying to uh, control for the confounding by indication. And in this case, they are doing that in a certain subset of, pop of patients. The patients where aspirin would always be used, I guess, in the current context, the patients where aspirin would never be used, they're out. And then there's this smaller portion of the circle where it could have maybe gone either way. And in that subset of patients, that's only a subset of patients with history of venous thromboembolism. That's not all patients with a history of venous thromboembolism, obviously. So in that subset of patients, 
okay, yes, maybe there's no difference. But that doesn't really speak to the entirety of patients. So it's kind of an incremental step. And I think that in terms of clinical application, if someone said to me, okay, so how would you recommend this be from a, from a 30,000 foot view, from a health policy perspective, how do you apply this? I don't think you can apply it. I think you'd say, well, you have to look at, so in some patients you could use aspirin, but in some patients it's probably really high risk and not advisable. And you have to go into those things to figure out which now for which person it is and which person it isn't. There's no blanket take home other than aspirin may be a suitable prophylaxis for certain patients with a history of venous thromboembolism. And then I, I ask you, uh, as the, the expert in this clinical arena of joint arthroplasty, how practice changing is that revelation? It's hard to say that it is. And that's what's so hard about it. So it's slightly on old. <laughs> because as a joint arthroplasty surgeon, I want to use aspirin, right? But it's a circular argument, unfortunately, to say history of it. I want to give it to this patient who's probably not so bad. So that's why it looks like they're not doing so bad with regards to VTE. Yeah. I mean, there are some, there are some realities where it's like the propensity score can only drill so deep. As we've discussed previously, it's not, it's not magic. It's not some kind of, you know, all knowing and powerful Oz that, that automatically can account for all of these things that are going around in the nexus that you can't see. It's, it's, uh, it's not a red pill or a blue pill or any of that stuff. It can only do what you're giving it. Um, and sometimes it comes up with answers that it's just kind of like, well, it's getting people to the same endpoint. It doesn't mean that they're traveling on the same path. You'd okay. want them to be at the same endpoint, right? right? You want everyone to not have venous thromboembolic events. Absolutely. I really wish so. All right. So now we are moving into the Your Cases on Hold featurette. This is pain catastrophizing predicts opioid and healthcare utilization after orthopedic surgery a secondary analysis of trial participants with spine and lower extremity disorders. This is by Roan and colleagues. There's another commentary. We're just rich in commentaries. And uh, so you don't have to take our word for it. Check it out for yourself. See what others in the space are thinking. So this is really interesting work that touches on another area that's uh, near and dear to, to me, which is um, sustained prescription opioid use and the use of opioids after orthopedic surgery or surgical procedures writ large. This was a secondary use data, as they say in the title, from two registered trials, registered with clinicaltrials.gov. They looked at patients with elective spine, um, lumbar or cervical, as well as lower extremity hip or knee arthritis surgery between 2015 and 2018. And their outcomes were 12-month post-surgical day supply of opioids and surgery-related healthcare utilization. So it's, it's very granular and it's very clinically rich, which is great. They had 240 patients with a median age of 42. They used a multivariable generalized additive model. They found that greater Day, number of days with opioids, supply of opioids was associated with higher levels of pain catastrophizing, and then spine versus lower extremity surgery, 
female relative to male. This was a study that was conducted in the military population. So um, there's also a component where uh, slightly more than half of the individuals were active duty military service members. They come to the conclusion after also seeing similar findings associated with healthcare utilization that greater pre-surgical days of supply of opioids and pain catastrophizing accounted for the post-surgical supply of opioids, and then also healthcare utilization. It is a heterogeneous cohort. It's lumbar or cervical spine procedures. There's lots of different procedures that can be included in that. And then it's elective lower extremity hip or knee osteoarthritis related procedures. But the average age of this population is just 42. So, um, you know, Really, this is probably not a lot of joint replacement procedures you wouldn't expect. Uh, osteotomies, thing, and those can be very painful, of course. Uh, half the population, 50, 120 of the 240 were, were spine patients. And um, when you look at the breakdown, the spine patients were, uh, on average, uh, about seven years older. The average age of the lower extremity osteoarthritis cohort was uh, 39. Yeah. So, so these are these are some things to just you know kind of keep in mind, and they're you know they talk about these parameters as modifiable risk factors. They say that pain catastrophizing you know deserves attention, which I fully agree with that during pre-surgical assessment because it can be modified with appropriate interventions, including a focus on pain resilience. And I know it's fashionable to say that, but I'm not so sure that pain catastrophizing behavior can be modified in every clinical instance. Not speaking from a research standpoint, just speaking from a clinical like experience. The reality is, is that if you're going to, as a clinician, devote yourself to the uh, opioid optimization of patients, the, the amount of contact time that that takes is, is quite intense. And as they do mention and point out in the limitations, you know, this is done in a I think they call it a government healthcare setting, but essentially a salaried healthcare setting where there isn't, you know, if you take extra time with the patient or something like that, it's not necessarily going to set you back the way it might in another clinical context. I can't say that that's uniform across the board, um, but but at the same time, there, there may be more leeway for that. They include a section in the discussion, which I thought was nice, that's literally subtitled Influence on Clinical Practice. So I thought it was great that they included that so that you can just hone in on that and, and get a sense of how, how, how they feel this should be applied to the, the clinical practice. At, at the end of the day, my questions revolve around the, the age of the cohort um, being so young. Uh, I'm not sure how generalizable or, or translatable um, that, that is, especially for these types of procedures. When you're talking about osteoarthritis, these are supposed to be osteoarthritis procedures. We don't have a good handle exactly on the breakdown of how much is X, Y, or Z, but these are osteoarthritis procedures in a cohort of patients that's greater than 50% active duty military and with a very young age. We're not seeing a lot of the general ability to translate this certainly to the contemporary spine or joint replacement patient who is like 60 and older and may also have the phenotype of pain catastrophizing is not necessarily uniform across these disparate populations either. And it's not, it's not an issue of like putting this on hold. I think that the points that they make are valid and they do appropriately contextualize this in the context of the study limitations. It's more kind of a cautionary note from my end for those who 
are going to try to take this and apply it in a clinical context that may not actually be universal. How's that? I think that's a fair assessment. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, wrote down that it's a large military hospital in Texas that already takes it out of the ballgame for most patient populations, right? So the thing that you kind of point on is that it is a very specific patient population, high percentage of active duty military. If I'm just looking at lower extremity patients, most of our patients are female. And in this population, it's mostly male, right? So it's not generalizable. I'd say to the lower extremity spine might be a little bit different, but the lower extremity would be a little bit harder in terms of an orthoplasty standpoint. But to your point of osteotomies, other things like that, um, I would like to see a sample size calculation. You know, I said they note that there was a small size, but if there is a way to do a sample size calculation, or not. So it's one of those areas where we talk about modifiable risk factors a lot in trying to improve patient outcomes. But the real question is what is modifiable and what's not? So you hit the nail on the head. You know, can I change my ability to pain catastrophize? I looked back at what we did during residency and I was like, how did we even get through that? So maybe our, our ability to handle pain was better then than it is now. And I don't know if this is an age thing. A time thing, who knows? But it's one of those things where I don't think I can actually modify it. It just was, you know, a state of, of mentality or state of who I was at that time or now. So, to your point, I agree with all your critiques there. Um, but it's interesting to take a look at a topic area that's a pretty hot topic, of course. Yeah. Did you use surgical recall when you were a med student? I or did. Like, yeah. Right. And in the surgical recall, like on like the first couple of pages, like the ones that you would blow by if you're just using it to like, but like the intro or whatever it is, it had these things to like motivate you to like get through your surgical rotation or even like your intern year. Cause I was still using surgical recall in my intern year. And, and it, it, it literally had a, 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 a statement at the bottom that said they can hurt you, but they can't stop the clock. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not wrong. <laughs> Yes, truer words have not been spoken. It's so true. <laughs> All right. So not on hold, but some cautionary tales for the uh, interested, avid reader. Moving on to our honorable mention section. So other work in the scientific space in this issue of the journal, very worthy of your attention and read. A comparison of revision rates and dislocation after primary total hip arthroplasty with 28, 32, and 36 millimeter femoral heads and different cup sizes. An analysis of 188,591 primary total hip arthroplasties by Hoskins and colleagues. There is an infographic for that. The role of amputation and myoelectric prosthetic fitting in patients with traumatic brachial plexus injuries by Cantwell and colleagues. Uh, that is 30 days free. Long-term clinical outcomes and implant survivorship of 151 total ankle arthroplasties using the Hintegra prosthesis, a minimum 10-year follow-up by Yoon et al., continuing this renaissance of rich literature around total ankle arthroplasties that have just been published in um, JBJS since early this year. In situ forming fibrin gel encapsulation of MSC exosomes, for partial thickness rotator cuff tears in a rabbit model, effectiveness shown in preventing tear progression and promoting healing by Wang and colleagues. This is a very interesting basic science work. And then uh, experiences of Canadian female orthopedic surgeons in the workplace, defining the barriers to gender equity from Heemstra and colleagues. 
that rounds out everything in the issue. I just wanted to bring up something additional that I was thinking about for the, the interested readers, some, some other way in which you could apply your cases on hold. Of course, all of us are doing CME and JBJS offers uh, self-assessment exams on each quarterly content uh, of the journal. So you can listen to each quarterly content of your cases on hold, and then you'll be hearing about the work and you can just take the test and that's going to count for maintenance of certification stuff. So uh, just another way that the uh, service we're providing to you here extends well beyond just the very entertaining, enriching and enlightening dulcet tones that you are hearing at the moment. And I love these dulcet tones. They make me sound, they they sound so beautiful and sweet to me. So (laughs) it's always a pleasure, always fun. And uh, we will keep you up to date and posted on everything JBJS and everything fun. So enjoy the summer. Hope you enjoy this issue. And we will be back again for another podcast. We're already reading the next issue of JBJS that has yet to even come out. But your case is probably still on hold. Yeah, sorry. I know that feeling too well. So we all know too well. It's not fun. But enjoy. (laughs) Bye. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.